This Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is the 50th day at the end of the seven weeks following Easter. At the first Pentecost, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was manifested, given, and communicated as a divine person to the church. Meaning that when Jesus ascended into heaven, which we observed that remembrance of last week, Thursday, 40 days after Easter, and celebrated on the last, on last Sunday, well then 10 days later, on the 50th day of Easter, God the Father sent, through Jesus, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to us, the Church. In the first reading for today, which came from the second chapter of the book of Acts, we read about that day of Pentecost. There we read, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The remainder of the book of Acts and the various additional books of the New Testament then all tell about the growth of the church as empowered through the Holy Spirit. Included in that growth were challenges and misunderstandings, both times of explosive growth with thousands added at a time, and great resistance to the gospel and the martyrdom of the early apostles and other Christians. One of the distinct concerns of the early church, which continues to this very day, is that even though a person becomes a Christian, does not mean that the person suddenly becomes sin-free. We all know the truth of this reality. We have each observed the sins and failures of other people within the church. Some of those have been quite public and damaging to the cause of Christ. Others are smaller and quieter and may go unnoticed to anybody except those personally affected and to God. God, of course, always notices when his people sin. Every so often I will be asked by somebody or another about the horrible deeds of another person. Typically that other person is a non-Christian. While I affirm that the sin is bad, there is simultaneously an expectation of sin. After all, the person is a pagan. The non-believer has no reason to follow God's standards. We can all recognize and be upset by these sinful actions, but if those persons have not become Christians and place themselves under God's standards for living, we cannot expect them to abide by God's standards. What is more important, what is expected, what is a standard we should all expect to be kept, is that we as Christians live by God's standards. What should shock us the most is the sins committed by those within the church, no matter how seemingly minor, instead of those committed by those outside of the church no matter how seemingly major. We notice in the writings of Paul to the different churches that he spends a lot of time correcting the sins of the people inside of the church. Paul scolds the church in Corinth for having arguments with each other. Paul does not go on and on about the Romans and their many several and severe sinful actions. They are pagans. We expect them to sin. Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth and says, stop arguing amongst yourself. You're Christians. You're not supposed to be sinning in this way. It is this observable fact that sin remains, even in the church, that brings us to our gospel passage for today, from the 20th chapter of the gospel according to John, beginning in the 19th verse. 
In this passage from from John's account of the gospel, we see the apostles receiving a unique Pentecost blessing. There we read, Jesus breathed on the apostles and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. It is this passage, among a few others, that provides the biblical basis for the sacrament of confession. There are some who may try to claim that the blessings of the ability to forgive sins were restricted to the first apostle. The Gospel according to Matthew, however, gives us reason to believe otherwise. First, Matthew reveals that Jesus repeatedly instructed the disciples, while Jesus was still teaching them, that whatever they bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And Matthew then records that Jesus, instructing his newly commissioned apostles, that they are to teach their successors to do all that they do, and that he, Jesus, is with them always. Meaning Jesus is telling the apostles, this commission is not for you only, it is for you and those who come after you. And most importantly, when you do what I have taught you, it is not you who has the power personally, it is me, Jesus, acting through you here on earth. The New Testament scholar Raymond Brown explains the meaning of the grammar of the original Greek text in our passage from John what the apostles would have understood Jesus as saying when he said, those sins you forgive are forgiven, is that Jesus said to them, when you forgive men's sin, at that moment God forgives those sins and they remain forgiven. It is for this reason the church has historically taught and teaches its members to be confident in their absolution from sin, confessed in the sacrament of confession, because... Through the absolution of the priest, our sins are forgiven us and are conscious on account of the faith. For the voice of the priest legitimately pardoning our sins is to be heard even as that of Christ the Lord. No one can attain salvation but through Christ. And by the virtue of his passion, and it was agreeable and of our great advantage that the sacrament should be instituted by the force and power and efficacy of which is the blood of Christ flowing to us to wash away the sins committed after baptism and that we might thus acknowledge that to our Savior alone are we indebted for the blessing of reconciliation with God. Why is this important to us today? Because a few reasons, prime among them is that the Bible tells us to confess our sins. Our sins inhibit, interfere with, damage, and restrict our relationship with God. The confession of our sins clears away the obstacles created by the sin and which are keeping us separated from the full blessings of that relationship with God. Why then confess to a priest instead of privately with God? For the sake of assurance. When a person prepares for sacramental confession, there is supposed to be an examination of conscience beforehand. There are a few different examinations that have been published over the years that are extremely helpful for this purpose, and there is the simple personal process of comparing your actions against what is God's standards. How do my actions compare against the Ten Commandments? How do my actions compare against the demand that we all walk with God humbly and treat everyone in a just manner? 
Are we loving God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves? The guides are helpful, however, because it's easy for us to not look too closely at ourselves. Having a guide forces me to ask myself questions that sometimes I do not want to answer and therefore would not have ever asked myself. Have I allowed myself to think about those things I should not, with various examples provided? Have I allowed myself to do those things I should not, with various examples provided? What has my language been like? What has been the subject of my conversations with others, friends, co-workers, etc.? Have I been engaging in gossip? What type of relationships am I keeping and engaged in? And the various questions continue. A good examination of conscience will uncover what we will, when only asking ourselves our own questions, frequently skip over. The act of personal confession is just that. It is personal. It is the taking of personal responsibility for sins we commit, and we all commit sins, and seeking God's forgiveness for them. There are some critics of confession among the various different denominations of Christianity that do not understand confession and its purpose, who say that not only is sacramental confession not necessary, but no confession after becoming a Christian is needed at all. They fail to see that as long as we are walking through this world, even when washed by the sin of Christ, washed from sin by Christ's blood, we still get the dirt of the world on us. This was demonstrated to us in an example when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and ended up in the argument with Peter. In John chapter 13, we read that Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples and Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, not my feet only then, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to Peter, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. In this passage, we see a foreshadowing of the purpose of confession. Jesus rebukes Peter's idea that he needs to be fully bathed again. Once a person is a Christian, that person is a Christian. That is why the sacrament of baptism is only ever administered once. The one who is bathed does not need to wash again. But there is the caveat, an exception, except for his feet. Yes, you are clean. Yes, you are a Christian. But you still walk through this world. You still get the dirt of the world on your feet. In other words, you still have sin entering your life. Jesus says to us by the way of telling Peter, you need to wash your feet that you've been kicking through the dirt of the world. You need to confess these temporal sins because otherwise you can have no part of me. The sacrament of confession exists and benefits us because Jesus has appointed his apostles and their successors to the very end of the age to be his voice on earth with the authority to pronounce the forgiveness of sins by the force and efficacy of which the blood of Christ flowing to us might wash away the sins committed after baptism. When we pray our confessions privately, that is a good and wonderful thing. All too frequently, however, our confessions are either incomplete or we, or we do not trust God at his word that he cannot make heard out loud 
to us his promise to forgive. I speak with people all the time who say to me, how do I know that I was complete in my confession? How do I know that God has forgiven me? How do I know that God has mercy for what I have done? This is why the, confe- why the church has been given the gift of sacramental confession. You and I and all the faithful can examine our conscience and go into confession knowing that it is the power of Christ hearing the confession, that the priest is Jesus' servant on earth given special commission to hear that confession, that when you make your confession it is being received by God and will receive the grace and mercy that God promises through his word. And when you hear the priest answering in reply while blessing you with the sign of the cross say the words of absolution may our lord jesus christ absolve you and by his authority i do absolve to the extent of my power in your need finally i absolve you from your sins in the name of the father and the son and of the holy ghost amen you know that at that moment god forgives those sins and they remain forgiven amen